What's up, Watermark family? My name is David Marvin. I direct the porch here on Tuesday nights, and we are continuing this series, Loaded Questions. I'm gonna read the passage, which is gonna be in John chapter three. So if you have a Bible, you can flip open to John chapter three, and we will dive in at verse one. If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screens. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who is a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, physical birth, and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it's come from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify of what we've seen, but you still do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As I said, we are continuing this series, Loaded Questions, looking at questions that Jesus asked that were loaded. And the question today is a question that he frames towards this religious leader. Do you not understand these things? The way that God works, the way that eternal life is something that you can know you have, do you not understand? In 1990, there was a project that was completed, and it was called the Hubble Telescope. Now, the Hubble Telescope is something that probably a lot of us heard about in school, or you have some vague memory of, and you know, it's a telescope that's up there. But some interesting facts about it, it's about the size of a school bus. It's by far the most famous telescope that's ever been created. And when it was launched, it cost about $1.5 billion in order to create and go up into space and give man the ability to see our world accurately from space on demand and to see the universe around us and images to be captured and sent back to Earth. Now there was a problem. When it was launched, it went up into space and they received the very first images from the Hubble telescope, which has gotta be an exciting thing. We're finally gonna see. And the images that they looked at were all blurry. Someone had wrongly calibrated the lenses. 
Now that's a bad day if you're that guy that's responsible, whoever it was, that Carl, and that they sent back to Earth and this $1.5 billion project seemed like it was a total bust, that the Hubble telescope needed glasses. And the people behind it came up with an idea. They knew that they couldn't bring it back down to Earth. It would cost too much and cause damage to the telescope. And to create another one would be an enormous expense. So they decided, we will create corrective lenses, giant contacts that we will send an astronaut into space and they will attach on the outside of the Hubble telescope. And it worked. And they sent back the images after doing so, and they were crystal clear. I mean, 2020 vision on steroids that the Earth could be seen at. Breathtaking. Now, what does that have to do with this conversation that Jesus has with this religious person? Well, Jesus is attempting to end this conversation, put corrective lenses on a man who had a flawed vision of what God was like, of who he was, of how eternal life could be experienced, and even this life, that Jesus was trying to give him a clear perspective on what is true, on reality. And throughout the conversation, he's correcting and saying, do you not understand these things? That's not how it works at all. To a man who devoted his life to religion and God, as we're gonna see. And I think for some of us listening in the room or online or even at a future time, God wants to put those same corrective lenses on your eyes. Because there may be some flawed perspectives, beliefs, things that you think about when it comes to God, eternal life, this life, you. And use the story of Nicodemus in this incredible exchange in order to do so. So I'm gonna walk through and I'm gonna pull out two things from the text. So we're gonna be here 30 minutes. It's going to be short and sweet. It's going to be great. We're going to put, or pull out two things from the text that has so many different implications we could pull out, but in an attempt to really highlight what Jesus is trying to highlight with this man. So John chapter 3, a little background on John. John is probably the most, or not probably, it is the most unique of all the Gospels. All the other Gospels are the synoptic ones, which basically means they kind of trace the same path. John spends half of the book on the last week of Jesus' life. And in chapters 1 through 12, he goes through some in different stories that make up his ministry. And he records the only place that we have the story of this exchange with Nicodemus. So I'm going to read it back again because we learn a lot about our character, Nicodemus, even in the first verse that we have. It says this. Now, there was a Pharisee whose name was Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we're told he's a Pharisee. What's a Pharisee? Uh, We think of them in a way that's probably not how or is not how the first century would have thought of them. If you've been in church in any amount of time, you think of them as like the arch nemesis, you know, the, the, uh, the people in Star Wars that are the enemy of God. But that's not how they were seen in the first century. They were men and women, or they were men, 6,000, very exclusive, who had devoted their entire life to God. That they followed the law and they thought, man, you know, following the law is a good thing. So let's take that and make it a great thing by following and adding additional laws. They had memorized the first five books of the Bible. Now, that may be something that most of you have done, but my guess is, for most of us, you know, let alone reading through the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, some of us have already, our Bible reading plan has gone out the window when we hit that book. And these men memorized it. So he was incredibly religious. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. What is that? Well, when Rome took over Judea, they didn't quite know what to do with the Jewish people. They were unique. They, were, they believed in one God, which was unique at that time, 
And so they decided, we're going to let you guys kind of rule yourself as long as you stay in line and have a Jewish ruling council. So 71 men made up the Jewish ruling council. So he's one of the 6,000. He's one of the 71 that ruled at that time. So he is incredibly religious, incredibly respected. And the Talmud, which is an extra biblical work or a Jewish writing, tells us that Nicodemus was one of the three wealthiest men in Jerusalem. So he's got respect, he's religious, he's got riches. And yet it wasn't satisfying. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, we know you are someone who's come from God. Jesus has been performing miracles. Clearly God is at work through you and we're told that he comes at night. Why would he come at night? Well, perhaps it was the only time in his schedule he could make work, or perhaps as a person who is called the teacher of Israel, he didn't want to bring a lot of attention to the fact that as an older man, he's shown up to a 30-year-old and saying, I've got some questions. And he comes, and before he can even ask his questions, Jesus answers and says, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, verse 3. And he responds in a way that is... uh, kind of comical. How can someone be born again when they're old? Surely you're not saying, I need to get back into my mother's womb, which is not an image any of us want to embrace. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, very truly, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit, physical birth and spiritual birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Saying, just like cats give birth to cats, humans give birth to humans, dog gives birth to dogs. Only the spirit can give birth to the spirit. What is required in order to see the kingdom of God is a supernatural work of God. The first thing from the text that we see is you see the kingdom of God or you have eternal life by birth, not work. You see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, by a new birth, not another work. But the only way that any person can have a relationship with God, will spend eternity with God, will go to heaven someday, is not by following some additional laws or performing some behavior, but by a supernatural birth of the Spirit. Nicodemus is having an eye-opening conversation that this man who fasted, who prayed, who gave and tithed, who is fanatical about keeping the Sabbath and doing all the things that God has said, had missed it. And he says, what he would say to you, all of those things Don't earn your right to have a relationship with God. Church attendance, reading your Bible, all of which those are great things, but none of those make an impact on whether or not you're going to spend eternity with God because you see the kingdom of God, which is heaven, by a new birth, not a new work. And he's trying to have a clarifying, define the relationship, if you will, with Nicodemus. You guys remember what defining the relationship is? For those of you who haven't dated in more than 10 years, there's a new term on the block called define the relationship. What is that? It's that moment in the dating relationship when the guy and the girl have that conversation. It's a little awkward. They've gone on a few dates. It typically always goes down the same way. They have not established they're in an exclusive dating relationship, but they've gone on some dates. And after one date, usually it's in you know, the car in somebody's driveway where they pull up and they begin to talk and man, I had such a great time with you, and yeah, I had such a great time too, and oh man, Ashley's texting and asking like how it went. She's always like, what's going on with you guys? And I'm like, yeah, we're just, you know, we're just hanging, and, uh, and then, you know, and he's like, oh yeah, my, all my guys ask the same thing too. They're like, are y'all like a thing or what? And she or he 
one of them will say, so what do you say? (laughs) And based on how they answer that question is a defining moment in where that relationship is going. And it can feel awkward and clunky, but it brings clarity to their relationship. And Jesus, in a loving way, is trying to bring clarity. Nicodemus, all the things you've devoted your life to, you've missed it. You see the kingdom of heaven by a new birth, not a new work. The brilliance of the analogy he uses, of it's a birth, is brilliant because he's trying to articulate this is something that only God can accomplish. Just like in a physical birth, it is entirely dependent on the parents. The disproportionate load a mother has in bringing a child into the world compared to the father is astonishing to me. My wife just gave birth three weeks ago, and this is our son Bear, who is such a cute nugget, keeping us up, but it it is what it is, and he's great, and this is our third son, and in reflecting, it is shocking how much a mother, the, the role that they play in terms of they carry the child, they go through the morning sickness, they, you know, sustain the child after he's brought into the world, they have to recover, and you compare that to the father's contribution, it's almost laughable. And yet, there's someone who contributes even less than the father. It's the child. That the child plays zero role in his bringing, him being brought into the world. And Jesus says, that's exactly how the spiritual birth is. That God performs the theological term of the miracle of regeneration. That unless God accomplishes it, someone will not see the kingdom of God. He's going to tell us how you can know but the evidence of somebody being reborn, but he's articulating it is a miracle of God, and it is mysterious, which is why he goes to where he does next, and he says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Verse 8, for the wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. That there are things, Nicodemus, that you can't fully explain, you can't even fully see, but you also can't deny You can't see the wind, but you can feel its effects. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, you can't always see the regeneration happen in a moment, but it's clear its effects on someone's life because they have been reborn because you see the kingdom of God by a new birth, not a new work. And then he answers or he gives us our question, the loaded question, where Nicodemus says, how can this be? And he says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? It's just like, do you even lift, bro? <laughs> you are the guy that everyone listens to the podcast? You, you, all the TED Talks, everybody's lining up to come see you. You're not a teacher. You are Israel's teacher and you don't understand how the kingdom of God works because he had missed it. And a lot of people in church, maybe here today, Maybe that grow up and spend years in church don't understand these things. They have bought the idea that, you know what? Good people can have a relationship with God. Bad people are those that God doesn't want a relationship with, and that's how God's work. That is a lie. The Bible's never taught good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. It says forgiven people go to heaven. And there's only one way to get forgiveness, and Jesus is about to tell us. But like Nicodemus, there are people who say that they're Christians and They don't understand these things, meaning they have not been reborn. 
And he says, very truly, I tell you, we speak of earthly things. How would you understand if I speak of heavenly things? No one understands except for the Son of Man, claiming to be the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus says. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. So Jesus is now gonna use an illustration that Nicodemus would have been really familiar with. Now, this may not be an illustration or story that you're totally familiar with, so a little bit of uh, uh, recap on what he's addressing. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, what happened there? Well, in Numbers 21, there was an outbreak among the people of God, so Israel, had basically been attacked, or there were these serpents that were biting the people of God, and they cry out to Moses, and God says to Moses, I want you to fashion a bronze serpent and put it on top of a pole with a crossbeam and raise it up. And everyone who looks at that serpent who's been bit will live. It was a picture of what sin and the infection that sin does through that venom. And everyone who looks at God's provision will live. In fact, here's a picture of it. This is an actual footage from that day when that happened. <laughs> I love that there's the source at the bottom on there. That's amazing. Where Moses erected up and... Everyone lived, and it's kind of a random story. And Jesus says, just as those who looked at the serpent that was lifted up were saved, so the Son of Man, verse 15, must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, if I'm Nicodemus, I am confused. We read that and we see some parallels and we understand it because we are this side of the cross. But Nicodemus is going like a serpent lifted up. And did you just say everyone who believes? There's two things that jump out of that. Everyone? There was a perspective in that day that God's heart was primarily for the Jewish people. That, you know, he had some love for the world, but it was really the Jews that God was all about. That when it came to God's perspective on the world, he was like, give me a J, give me an E, give me a W, let's go Jews. And Nicodemus is hearing everyone who believes, not everyone who behaves, will have eternal life. And the Apostle John, who's writing the Gospel of John, it's as though he steps out of the story to emphasize to his audience what Jesus is saying. He's telling the story and the dialogue, and it's as though he goes, let me just punctuate what Jesus just said. And he writes a verse that he had no idea would reverberate through the halls of history since it was penned. 26 words that would make up the most famous sentence in existence. A sentence that would be placed on the bottom of in and out cups, on the eye black of football players, on the bottom of Forever 21 bags, which is quite a shocker. Who knew that? <laughs> and all over the place. And he would pen and emphasize, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in or trusts in him shall not perish but have eternal life 
And John is saying, let me tell you exactly what God is doing. He so loved the world. In other words, what motivated God to lay down his life, to give his life on behalf of humanity, to provide a savior for humanity, was not, oh, there's a bunch of people that really love me. It was that God really loved people. People that loved him, people that didn't love him, and that moved him to give his life to be lifted up so that any person who puts their trust in him will have eternal life. In other words, he gives us the evidence of what it looks like to be reborn. It involves a new belief of trusting in Jesus as the payment for their sin or as their savior. The second idea that he emphasizes is those who see Jesus as their savior are reborn. Those who see Jesus as their savior, as the payment for their sins on the cross, are those who are reborn. And John uses a really interesting Greek phrase. The first time in all of Greek literature that this phrase is used is here. It's the phrase believes in or trusts in. In other words, there's lots of other places that says trusts that, believes that. And John says, no, it's, it's anyone who puts their trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross as the payment for their sin has been extended forgiveness and been reborn. The evidence of someone having the new birth is that they have said, Jesus, you are the payment for my sin on the cross. Everything that I did was paid for. I'm not a good enough person to ever be able to earn my way to God, but you laid down your life for me. And I receive that, I accept that, which means I accept nothing I could do would get me in relationship with you. And it's only through what you've accomplished that I can have eternal life. Because those who see Jesus as the Savior are reborn. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's interesting, at the beginning of the dialogue, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, which is a word for teacher. We know that you are a teacher Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher. And then Nicodemus is called a teacher. And he's thinking, this is a conversation between two teachers. And Jesus is putting those corrective lenses and saying, this isn't a conversation between two teachers. This is a conversation between a sinner and a savior. The world doesn't need another teacher. Teacher implies rules, implies religion. The world needs a savior that can provide relationship. And Nicodemus is having all of his categories blown that those who see the kingdom are reborn and the only way you get reborn is by believing and accepting Jesus as the payment for your sin. That following a teacher is religion. Trusting in a savior allows for relationship. It's funny, I, from time to time, will take my kids or my older son um, on like sporting events or go to a game, a Stars game, or this next weekend, we're actually gonna go to a Stars game. And you know what I've noticed about Stars games and Mavericks games and Cowboys games? Every time you get to the door and want to go in, they ask you for something. They say, can I see your ticket? And it's bizarre that 
every time that I've attempted to say, well, I don't have a ticket, but I'm a really nice person. I pay my taxes, never cheated on my wife. I try to read my Bible and, you know, give to charity. They always say, okay, I need to see your ticket. And if I go, I know, I just told you I don't have a ticket, but I, I read my Bible, I pay my taxes, I try to give to church, you know, I, I need your ticket. Because they know it doesn't work like that. And in a very real sense, when it comes to seeing the kingdom of God, as foolish as it would be to give your resume to the ticket clerk at a sports game, it is to stand before God and say, but I'm a good person and I've tried to read my Bible or I try to not cheat on my spouse and I give out money when I see somebody homeless there. It doesn't work like that. The only way that anyone sees the kingdom of God is by receiving Jesus as their savior. And here's where that analogy of that ticket breaks down. Because the ticket, once you get inside of the sporting events, it, it's worthless. It's just good for getting you in. And Jesus is so much more than that. He's not just good for transportation to heaven. When you trust in him, it leads to transformation in this life, that he's not a ticket, he's a king. And he begins to rule and change and save. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you've spent your whole life thinking the Bible teaches, behave, and you'll have a relationship with God. And you've bought a lie. The Bible teaches there is only one way to see the kingdom, and it is by receiving a savior that you and I cannot save ourselves. And all the stories and all the memorized verses and everything you've done, Nicodemus, and you missed it. You don't understand these things. My son, uh, last 4th of July, was um, given the chance to do, for the first time in his life, uh, you can stay up as late as you want, and intentionally. And so we stayed up and allowed him to stay up and just crush snow cones and candy and all this different stuff and watch the fireworks. And so here's us watching the fireworks, 4th of July, on the back porch. He's just like on level 10 excitement right now. And the fireworks end, and he's so ecstatic, as you know, a five-year-old is, because he's like, I've never seen this time of the day before. And he says, this is the second greatest holiday of my life. And I was like, that is so precise. And I'm curious. What's the greatest holiday? And he says, oh, Easter, definitely Easter. And at that moment, I'm like, oh, man, I need to do parenting classes. That's right it is. Easter, the greatest day in human history. Jesus came back alive, changed everything. Yes. Why? And he goes, and I'm expecting him to say something about Jesus. He goes, oh, I just like the name Easter, East and Ur. It's a pretty fun name. And I was like, oh, man. Cancel the parenting classes. <laughs> you don't understand what happened. And when you're five, it's funny. But when you're 25 or 35 or maybe 55 and you don't understand the significance and the point and the meaning of what happened at Easter, which is the point of Jesus being lifted up, it's tragic. And Nicodemus had spent his entire life studying the scriptures, reading, and he had missed it. Now, I want to show you quickly how the story of Nicodemus ends. And there's some indication that maybe he didn't always miss it. 
But regardless, more important is that you don't have to miss it. And by the progression of his life, so the conversation happens and Nicodemus goes back to living his life as a Pharisee. And you fast forward in John chapter 7 and we're told that there was this religious ruling group. Remember, Nicodemus was a part of that. And they began to go, Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath. We have to arrest him and put a stop to this Galilean miracle man. Send the temple guards to go arrest Jesus. And Jesus is at this festival. It's called the Feast of Booze. Basically, it's the state fair and everyone's around. And they send the temple guards. And the temple guards come back to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, of which Nicodemus was one. And they go, why didn't you arrest him? And they were basically like, we've never heard anybody speak this way. It's so powerful. They were like, you listened to a sermon? And they're like, yeah, it was amazing, actually. You know, Gary gave his life to Jesus. And uh, it didn't happen. That's not in there. Point being, and in the midst of the conversation, the rulers say, he must be stopped. And Nicodemus stands up and says, does our law say that we can arrest someone without reasonable cause? He stands up for Jesus. Now, a few chapters later, Jesus continues to work miracles. And by John 11, he raises a man from the dead and his popularity just explodes. And the religious ruling group, remember that 70 men that Nicodemus was on, says he must be stopped. And they send the temple guard once again with Judas. And they find Jesus in a garden praying. And they arrest him. And they bring him back. And they hold an illegal trial with the Jewish ruling council, of which Nicodemus was present and a part. And they take him and say he's guilty, he deserves to be killed. And they take him to Pilate because Jewish people couldn't, the Jews couldn't inflict or carry out capital punishment, but Pilate could. And so they take him to Pilate, and Pilate's this Roman governor. He's like, I, why are you in front of me? They claim that you claim to want an insurrection or something. Are you the king of the Jews, Jesus? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate says, this guy may be crazy, but he doesn't deserve to die. And he tries to dismiss and let Jesus go. And the Jewish Religious rulers, of which Nicodemus was associated and a part of, we're told, began to incite a crowd and say in John chapter 19, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if, this, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And the Jewish leaders get the crowd to say, crucify, crucify crucify him. And if you're Nicodemus and you're watching all of this happen, you've got to be thinking, there's no way this is real. Crucify him? What has he done? Raise someone to life? Give sight to people who are blind? Allow lame people to walk? Crucif you crucified the worst of the worst criminals. And that day, crucifixion wasn't something just handed out for somebody who robbed the local grocery store. It was handed to people who were murderers crucify. And Pilate again tries to let him go, but eventually the crowd was overwhelming and Pilate doesn't care, so he's like, fine, let him be crucified. And he's led away to be crucified. And on that hill, it's Nicodemus, people surrounding as this famous person who had just raised somebody from the dead is about to be killed. And maybe he's looking through the crowd and all he sees is the backs of heads and they're at Calvary and all he can see is just a big group of people He's kind of two criminals crucified. And then over the crowd, 
the man he went at night to meet with is lifted up, beaten and bloody, hung on a cross. And maybe it began to click when the Son of Man must be lifted up that all who trust in him will have eternal life. The reason I say maybe is because he then does something very interesting. We're told in John 19 that Nicodemus takes the body of Jesus. He goes to Pilate after he's crucified and kills and says, I would like the body. And he and another man named Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds and taking Jesus' body, they wrapped it. They covered in the blood the Savior of the world. And they buried in Joseph's tomb in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. The man who was afraid to be seen is now performing the funeral of the one that his colleagues and the ruling council had just had killed. And do we know that Nicodemus fully understood those things? Maybe it all came into focus, maybe it didn't. Church history says that it does, and tradition says that he became a believer and eventually was killed for his faith, but regardless, it doesn't really matter if he ever understood these things. What matters is do you understand these things? That only those who are reborn will see the kingdom of God. And the only way to experience that new birth is by trusting in what Jesus did when he was lifted up for you, for me, for everyone who's ever lived and crucified to be the savior of all who would trust in him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the incredible story and dialogue and exchange in ways that you work. And I thank you that whether we know if Nicodemus eventually came to that place or not, we can know that we have come to that place by trusting in what you did on that cross and understanding that you came to live the life we couldn't and die the death that we should have out of your overflowing, amazing love. I pray that if anyone who's not accepted, received, experienced that new birth, that right now, by your spirit, you would do what only you could do and allow them to trust in Jesus as the savior and payment for their sin, who was lifted up for them and three days later rose again. We worship you now in song, amen.